the investment you make in people and making sure that your people know that they're seen and that they're valued, you get that back tenfold. And then what happens is the people that work for you see you doing that and then they start surfacing and doing the same thing that you're doing. And so it really becomes this force multiplier effect where if you just wait for sales kickoff or a quarterly business review to recognize people, there are so many tiny little things that happen in between that just get lost through the cracks. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, Rather, a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. I use it as a litmus test, generally speaking, that over time, if my nerves and anxiety quell, then I'm probably not upping the bar on the types of guests that I want to be getting. Because if I'm always comfortable, then I'm sitting in my comfort zone of the types of guests that I'm talking to. Whether that's stature of guests or the content that I want to explore or that they're in revenue versus marketing versus a CEO. Am I pushing? Am I pushing myself? And am I pushing the peripheries of what I think this show could be? So anyway, Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jubin, for having me. Welcome to the Kleiner office and welcome back to Sand Hill Road. I think I'm here on your first day back. <laughs> you are here for back to school day. I saved my suit and tie for another day, but you are here for back to school day. So it's great to have you. I start these things all the same way. I'll read your background to you. Tell me how I do. Usually it's somewhere between good, bad, and great. So you can be the judge of that. And then we'll go from there. Went to Cal Poly, started out as an engineer. And then you went to Deloitte for a year. Then I've heard you say this so many times and I even practiced. I was like, don't screw this up. Ink to me. Ink to me. You got it. And you were an SE there, sales engineer for a couple of years. Then you went to VMware. Things got interesting for you. Seven years there. Got promoted, inside sales rep, inside sales manager, inside sales director, district manager. Then you went to Coverity. Spent a year there. Then Meraki, Cisco, you spent a year there. Was it Cisco at the time? No, it was pre-acquisition. Okay, pre-acquisition. Then you went to Co-Raid, three years, director of corporate sales. Then you went to Andreessen Horowitz, spent three years there. We had a lot of overlap in the things that we've done and the things that we were doing, minus a podcast, I guess. We have, yeah. I didn't think of the podcast idea for go-to-market, but it's a great idea. Yeah, thanks. You just did a better job of actually doing it. This is just me being able to sit in the room and talking shop all the time. And then you went to Zendesk, five years there, started as the VP of sales for North America, then the SVP of commercial sales. And then as of November of 2021, which is six months ago? Four, five, five. Five months ago. Yeah. You are the CRO of Articulate. Correct. Articulate or Articulate? Articulate. There's a bar on top of the A in the logo for okay. the long A. Can we start by you telling me what you believe the difference is between a poorly and well-run coffee shop? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Can we start there? Yes. So there's an analogy that I talk about when I'm talking about leadership and management where you can walk into two completely different Starbucks, which 
arguably should be the same experience and have two very different experiences that you can walk in and they know your name. They usually remember what your order is. You get your order. It has your proper name on it. That's the experience I have at the Starbucks my daughter and I go to every week. They know your name. I'll be pre-order from the car. And when I walk in, they're like, good morning, Jamie. And they hand me my vanilla frap and which is not for me. And the soy soy latte. (laughs) I don't eat the vanilla. I'm not 13. So no, I don't have a vanilla frap, but the 13 year old does and she loves it. And that's great. That sounds great. So that's a well-run Starbucks. And then you could go into another one that should be the same. And the line is long. They're messing up orders. It's not a very pleasant experience. And what I talk about is that the manager of that store has a lot of influence and impact over how any type of organization is run. And so if you as a manager, your perspective is force multiplied in whoever you're managing. And it doesn't matter if it's an enterprise sales team or if it's a local coffee shop, but the expectations and the accountability that you're setting with your employees will set the tone as to how that organization operates and interacts with your customers ultimately. I was thinking about this. So you gave this analogy in a presentation. You know which presentation I'm talking about? I don't know where it was. It was I saw it on YouTube somewhere. I've probably used it more than once, but yes, <laughs> I do think it's on YouTube. It's a metaphor. Is that the correct way of describing what it is? It is. It's an example of that leadership matters in any shape or form, that it doesn't matter how complicated the role might be, but that leadership matters. That's kind of the point I'm trying to make. What was conversation like for Jamie at the dinner table growing up? So third grade and under, my parents were both teachers, and I honestly do not remember much about what we talked about at that age. When I was in third grade, my dad went into a sales role. You know, he basically was in that role till he retired. He sold printing sales. So let's say you need a physical manual, which most people don't use anymore, but let's say you need one for your car and you need that physical manual printed and put in your car. My dad's plant would provide that service. And so he would sell that service to Honda, educational organizations, et cetera. And the conversations I remember changing once my dad was in sales. And one story that really stuck out with me that when I eventually got into sales, I carried with me. I remember him, it was holiday season, And he was telling a story that, you know, he wanted to make sure that everyone in the plant knew how much he appreciated them. And he'd get the accolades if he had a great year or closed a really big sale. But there was this long line of individuals behind him that made that possible. And so what he did was he bought every single person a grocery gift card. It just seemed like a really simple thing. And he literally would hand it to some of the people and they'd have tears in their eyes because it would mean that they could provide a different holiday meal than they otherwise would have been able to do. And that story and that emotional tie to it, it really connected with me in that when you're in a place of work, that human connection, showing people that they're valued and that you care about them, that's a really important part of work. And that's something that I think has become core to what I believe in now. It's that little kernel of story that happened I have no idea how long ago, probably early high school-ish, maybe. Kind of reminds me of one of the things that you talked about in maybe the same presentation. One of the things that you were talking about was how you acknowledge things that people do on a day-to-day basis. And you don't acknowledge it in a formal capacity of sales kickoffs and QBRs. It is an email that you send copying that person's boss and their boss's boss, just saying, okay, great job on this deal. Love what you did. And it reminds me of Tom Mendoza who is the former CRO president of NetApp, took it from 
three million to a billion dollars. He talks about this principle that he has catching people doing something right. He used to make over a hundred calls a week to his team, a hundred calls just acknowledging. And he would ask his leaders and managers to send him an email every time somebody did something right. And then he would call them just to acknowledge, just like such a simple act to say like, hey, I love what you did here. Thank you. Kind of reminds me of that. The investment you make in people and making sure that your people know that they're seen and that they're valued, you get that back tenfold. And then what happens is the people that work for you see you doing that and then they start surfacing and doing the same thing that you're doing. And so it really becomes this force multiplier effect where if you just wait for sales kickoff or a quarterly business review to recognize people, there are so many tiny little things that happen in between that just get lost through the cracks. We recently just highlighted at our all hands that we had last week, an email that one of our reps had received from a customer who said, I never send feedback to vendors. This is not something I do. I hope your company appreciates how thoughtful, how responsive, and what a pleasure you've been to work with because I don't experience this with any of the other vendors I work with. And we put that on a slide and shared it with the entire organization as, you know, that's something that would definitely fall through the cracks. That's not something that is going to be shown at annual kickoff. But I wanted the team to recognize that we're the face of the company and these little tiny interactions, they add up and they matter And that that customer feedback is something that we want everyone to strive for. A customer might pick a product, but they're choosing a relationship. And we want to be the relationship that they choose. And how do we do that? Super cool. Did you Peloton this morning? Monday's my off day. Monday's your off day. It's my only off day. I've heard you Peloton almost every day. Six days a week, unless I'm sick or otherwise unavailable, but yes. And what's your username on Peloton? Uh, My username is Sales Cycle. And that's why we do background checks. I bring that up because I've heard that you are disciplined in not only that, but in many, many things that you do. And one of the questions that I generally ask folks who know my guests is what's something that you would talk to him or her about over a drink or a coffee? And a consistent theme of an answer that I would get is around discipline. So I thought, well, maybe I should ask her. I thought maybe the starting point to that line of questioning would be, what are some of the things that you are very disciplined about? I am ridiculously disciplined. I think it's because I'm very driven. I know that about myself and I haven't let people or obstacles prevent me from doing what I think that I can do. And so how discipline shows up for me is you're right. I go to bed every night, lights out at 9.30, unless I'm traveling. And of course, there's extenuating circumstances. But let's assume I'm home. It's a normal work week or weekend. I'm in bed, lights out by 9.30. I'm up by 5.30 every single day, weekdays, weekends. I'm on the Peloton tread or bike by 5.45. And then I'm ready to help with the kids. I've got two of them. I've got a 13-year-old daughter. I have an eight-year-old son. I don't have time to eat with them, but I do spend a little time with them help my son get his snack ready because my daughter's very self-sufficient, the eight-year-old not so much. So I spend a little time making sure we get them out the door. And then by 7.45, 8 o'clock, I am on and I am checking Slack. We're not an email-heavy company. We're almost 100% internal Slack users. And I'm online. I'm on meetings. I'm on calls. And 
I'm usually disciplining my day between where's my proactive time, where's my reactive time, because you need time to respond to Slack. I need time to think about what are the plans for next quarter? You know, we have a CFO starting in a month. What do I need to make sure that I'm covering with him once he starts so that we can really set ourselves up for successful in 2023? So I'm balancing between scheduled meetings, proactive planning time, and reactive time to Slack. Because if you don't schedule that, I'm not a parallel processor, meaning, Jubin, if I'm talking to you right now, I can't read a Slack at the same time and respond to it. I'm paying attention to you when I'm on a Zoom with you or in person like we are today. I'm paying attention to you. I'm not going to divide that attention. But that does mean if you know that about yourself, then you have to dedicate time. Like, here's a 30-minute slot where I'm going to go ahead and respond and triage all these things that have come at me. Because otherwise, you can be unresponsive in that regard. What happens if you break your routine? What happens if it is... 10.30 and you're not in bed yet. What does Jamie feel like internally? I'm feeling like 60 minutes is a long time to have missed my time slot. However, what I think is, well, I'm just going to get up at 5.30 anyways the next day, do my normal routine, and then I'll get back on track tomorrow. So it's not that I can't adjust if things change. Like when I have to travel for work, which we're going to do in a bit, we're going to do an exec leadership. Great. I want that time to meet with the exec leaders and I'm not so regimented that I can't make adjustments. I just think when I can be disciplined, I'm more balanced and I can be more productive by being so. I ask because selfishly, I get very anxious out of my routines and I'm also extremely routine oriented. You know, my one o'clock coffee, I got to have it. My salad for lunch. This is crazy. But if I don't have a salad for lunch, I genuinely feel anxious. It's so ingrained in me because I use the inputs in my life as what I think of will be the outcomes. I think that as an example, if I don't sleep eight hours, I beat myself up over it. So if I didn't sleep eight hours last night, I would have walked into this conversation thinking, you know what? You're not going to have your A game for this thing. You're not going to be able to be as present as you'd like to be. You're not going to be as engaged. You're going to be thinking about something else or tired or whatever because you didn't do the sets of things that you needed to do to set yourself up for success today. And so retrospectively, I really beat myself up over it. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I think I probably would have done that a bit earlier in my career. I think the way I think about it now is that There are no mistakes. So this just is. If I didn't sleep well last night, which often happens, I'm not the great sleeper. It just is. And so I'm just going to go through my day. And however I show up that day is the best I could show up that day. So I think you have to give yourself a little bit of grace to understand that however you are in that day, that is your best. Might not be the same as the day before. It might be the same as tomorrow. But your best is what you've done that day. And you have to give yourself some grace for that. Would you consider yourself having more natural ability or working harder than most people? You know, the Guy Raz podcast where he ends every interview with how much of this do you attribute to luck versus talent? How would you answer that question? I really believe in hard work. I think that I don't view myself necessarily as naturally talented, but that I can look at people that I aspire to be like and That's how I've gotten through a lot of my life is by learning from others as opposed to assuming that I know it myself. Now, do I have some natural talents? I believe that I do. I can quickly see how things could fit together. I'm very good at memorizing and learning my deals, knowing what's what. I can keep all of those things very, very organized in my head. But is it 
luck or is it talent or is it hard work? I think that I've really put a lot of studying into my life. It started with college. I wasn't a natural engineer. I was a top AP student in high school in English. I was a B student in math in high school. You didn't get an interview at Deloitte the first time around. Is that correct? I didn't. No, I was actually really shocked by that because I had honors. Granted, it was three, five, but still, it's still with honors. And I'd been involved in a lot of extracurricular activities. I felt that I had at least earned an interview, not the job. I wasn't entitled to a job, but on paper, I felt that I had checked enough boxes that I should at least get an interview. And so when I didn't, I was really disappointed and really sad about it. But then I thought, you know what? Odds are someone might not show up tomorrow. So I pull out my ugly powder blue suit. I press it. I hang it up in the closet. I'm like, I'm just going to show up tomorrow. And if there's a spot, I'm just going to let them know. Listen, I know you didn't have me on the list, but if anyone doesn't show up, I would love an opportunity to meet with you. Ironically, they call me that night and they say, hey, Jamie, an opening came up. Would you be interested in taking it? And I said, funny, you should ask because I'm on my way anyway. I'm on my way. My suit's ready. I kind of (laughs) like felt like, did I self-manifest that? Like, how did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I heard at VMware from the folks that I talked to there, it wasn't the easiest job for you to get. When I asked the question around like natural ability, talent versus hard work, it felt like for a very long time, you were generally underestimated. And through that process of being underestimated, you had to overcome and compensate for that. And it's patterned everywhere through your background. What do you think of that? I think that no one has ever said that to me, but I think it's a really astute observation, actually. Going back to the math teacher in high school, he told me, I went to office hours and he said, I don't know why you're trying so hard. You'll never get a higher than a B in math. And I went to college and got nothing but A's in math because I felt that I could work harder and prove that wrong. I was the dark horse at VMware because I was a sales engineer. I'd never carried a bag directly. I had to first convince Brian Cox to give me an interview, which he did. Then I had to convince Carl Eschenbach that he should take a shot on me. And I got past him. Then I had to sit down with Diane Green and convince her why she should add me to the team. This is when she still interviewed reps, why she should consider me for a rep to sell VMware. And fortunately, I was able to sell my way through that, but I still was in a territory that was underperforming for a good nine, 12 months. I was the bottom performer and it was really, really painful to be shown the forecast every single week and you're the lowest performer. And everyone thought, well, of course she is because she didn't carry a bag before this like we did. She was a sales engineer. So I didn't let it get to me. I figured out who was the best at channel on the team, who was the best at negotiating on the team, figured out what they were doing, learned from them, had lunch with them. I worked harder. I eventually worked my way up to be one of the top performers on the team. I don't know why that is, that underestimation. It has happened on, I think, multiple times, but there's been key people in my career that fortunately I've built a brand with enough people that they see that you could take a bet on me and it's very rare that I don't deliver. It is everywhere. It is the first conclusion that I came to after doing all of the conversations that I had was that you've had to overcome more than most. And in some ways, it feels like one of your secret weapons. I don't know how else to say it because you have developed this thing inside of you where even if you're not underestimated, 
you still feel like you are. And so when you go into a situation, you're still preparing with the insecurity of that feeling, which is amazing. That is a very powerful weapon to have. I just thought about it. I felt like sharing with the class on the first day of school in Kleiner. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I do believe in preparation because it pattern matches with how I've been successful in the past. So being prepared or thinking, you know, I don't like to go into customer calls underprepared either for the same reason. I want to understand what's the pain we're trying to solve. What is their perception of it? What is our perception of it? What does a positive outcome look like? I don't like to go, if possible, I think you can get the most out of a situation by being prepared. But yeah, I have a bit of that underdog thing going, don't I? Definitely. (laughs) It's a good thing. The other thought that I had that I wanted to just run by you is from the beginning of your career till I'd say Andreessen, there was one really meaningful home run in my mind, which was VMware. This was a home run company and it set your career off on a very different trajectory. You got laid off at Inktomi, if I'm not mistaken. Then you go to VMware, have this crazy run. Then you go to Coverity. You have a one-year run there. Then you go to Meraki. You have a one-year run there. You go to VMware, have this great ride. You're kind of walking out of there hot stuff. And then you have, what, two misses? Like, how do we characterize those? I joined VMware when I was pretty young. I was in my mid-20s. I didn't really know how to qualify opportunities outside of VMware, to be completely honest. So the reason I had decided to leave was I was in a district manager position at VMware, which was a lot of travel, right? I had to be out in the field with the reps and I just delivered my first kid and I didn't want to be gone every week. I had made a decision that I was going to be happier. My daughter would be happier if I had a job where I could be a little bit closer to home. So that was really a precipitant for me considering leaving. And then I followed one of my VMware network Bertrand Yusani was the CRO over at Coverity. And so he brought me over. There's some important lessons to be learned from the frothiness between VMware and A16Z that I wouldn't take back for anything because it helped. I don't believe there's any mistakes anywhere in there. What do you mean the frothiness? Well, I mean, short stints, right? Short stints are frothy. It's not like you can sink your teeth in and work someplace for Mm. three years or so. It just, it felt frothy. That's how I see it in my mind. Those years were frothy. I was brought into Coverity which if I had known how to qualify, the average deal size was over $100,000. The trials were very heavily assisted by sales engineering, and they brought me in to build in a transactional business. How do you build a transactional product-led growth business when you have a very heavily assisted trial and your ASP is over $100,000? Basically, it's not going to go to market naturally in that kind of motion. So I was brought in to create it, And it really wasn't possible. So I actually had to lay off people when I was at that job. And I did not like that feeling at all. I felt that the market was probably the wrong fit for me. And then I got introduced through my network over to Meraki, which was product-led growth, much more kind of what I felt like was in my wheelhouse. So I figured I'll make that transition. What I hadn't quite figured out in that point was there's different ways people want to run a company and there's different cultures. And not every person is going to be the right fit for every culture. But the lesson I learned in that transition is that when you're an employee of a company, as long as you're an employee of that company, the leadership 
is the one who's going to run it. And as long as they're not doing anything illegal, okay, let's take illegal off the table. But leadership can do other things that you may or may not agree with. But at the end of the day, it's their choice of how they run the company. And so every day that you wake up and you decide to work at a company, you show up and you do the best job you can in the way that they want it run. And I had to learn the lesson of if this is a playbook that you're going to fit in, this is what you're going to have to do. And if you want to run a different playbook, then you need to decide to go run a different playbook, but it's got to be somewhere else because you are not running this company. And I think that was a really, really important piece of humility for me to learn and something that really helped me understand when I wasn't feeling as engaged later on in other jobs, well, I'm still going to show up every day with a great attitude. I'm going to do a great job. And when it's time for me to find something else, I'm going to do that. But I'm going to leave everything on the floor until the last minute that I'm there. And I don't know that if I'd had all home runs and everything was easy and everything was perfect, would I have ever learned that? I probably could have made that mistake farther down the line when it mattered a lot more. So the opportunity cost was much higher at that point. I think that's true. I think it's also a good lesson, which is that when you have a run like you do at VMware, it's very easy to normalize how good things are. I find myself going through that all the time. You know, the five-year-ago version of me would have been quite pleased with this version of me, but this version of me is embarrassed by what he can be in a couple of years. And I think you do that in everything in life, and I think especially in careers and jobs, there's an easy way of thinking, oh, yeah, this is a good situation, but I'm also doing so much here, and whatever they're rating me here, and I should go somewhere else. And I'm not saying you did that, but it's easy, even after how good you were and how dynamic of a career you'd had at VMware, to then go take a couple of one-year stints. That's a humbling reminder. And my friends ask me all the time, Jubin, you know, I think I'm ready to leave Datadog or Snowflake or whatever, and they're having great runs. And I always say, be careful. It's not always as easy as you think. It's definitely not. And when you come off of a great run, you're absolutely right. I think it changes your perspective. And I also think that when you're at one company for a really long time, it also doesn't give you the sense of perspective of all the different vectors you should look at when you are looking for a different opportunity. So I do think that there's value in being at a handful of different places as opposed to just being at one, I find that it has been very valuable for me. But you're absolutely right. It's easy to become, oh, I can just recreate this somewhere else. There's only so many rocket ships and you have to decide like what matters to you the most and how do you qualify for that? How long do you think it takes to have a real run somewhere? Because it is important, I agree, to spend time at a bunch of different places. But at some point, your career is usually made at one place. Like usually you have one big shift that you do at one place. And if you're a rep, that means you have to develop the territory and then you get promoted and then you build all this political capital internally and then you get a better territory. And people say, wait, two years before you leave a job. Two years should be the minimum. Two years feels like nothing to me. Two years feels like you've barely even gotten off the ground. Do you feel like there is a mental model for how long you can make your career being in one place? I think it depends on where you're probably at in your career. So let's say that you are a rep or you're an individual contributor and you want the opportunity to move into management. Two years is probably not enough. You need to have consistent attainment and then you have to have an opening to be promoted into. So I think what altitude you're at probably depends on how long of a time you spend. Now, let's say that you're in a role where you're not getting promoted. You're basically at sea level, like I'm at sea level now. 
So if that's the one role you're going to be in, I think that that calculus maybe changes a little bit because you can see, okay, now you're at some place for two years or three years. Where's the company going to go? Is this where I want to be? Or do I need to think about this a little bit differently? I think that's different than I'm trying to grow my career and get different roles because that'll depend on you're proving yourself and there being opportunity to grow into. The more growth a company has, then the more opportunities there's going to be for folk to move into different roles. What was your job when you joined Andreessen? For those that are listening that don't understand the way that this stuff kind of works, can you talk about your role? Because I don't know about you, but I get more than ever in my life the, hey, Jubin, I want to join venture. I really want to leave operating and join venture. By the way, that comes from the CROs that I've interviewed, and that comes from ICs that made their first number in their career. Did you also experience that? When I first got hit up on LinkedIn for that role, I'll admit that I ignored it because I'm like, why would someone in venture want someone like me? Like, I don't understand what I would do in venture. So I ignored it. But a friend of mine, Josh Leslie, was in the A16Z portfolio and he said, no, you should respond back to them. That could be an interesting role. You should respond back. And so I did. I also happened to be six months pregnant at the time. So I was not planning on going anywhere. I wasn't going to leave co-rate at that time. I was just going to have my baby and then see how things go. So I respond back and it turns out to be an interesting role. So it reported into Mark Cranny, who was an operating partner who ran market development. And market development's responsibility was twofold. One, to help do councils, probably much like you do today, with the portfolio company on their go-to-market strategy. The other component of it was to form relationships with Fortune 500 CXOs that they would want to come in and participate in the Andreessen Horowitz briefings, the executive briefings that we would hold. And so the job was kind of twofold. Then Mark was looking for someone to build out a team that would reach out to Fortune 500 companies that we had not established relationships with. So kind of think of it like an outbound BDR-ish type of scenario. And then also folks that would host the briefings. So you kind of look at that more of an account executive type of role. And then the other component was Mark is great at enterprise top-down medic-based selling, and he had less experience with bottoms-up, freemium, try-and-buy, product-led growth, which is where a lot of my wheelhouse had come from. So I was a good compliment to him because I understood that go-to-market strategy a bit more and the type of organizations we would run and whatnot, and I could also help the portfolio company who had that model. So I could build that team for him in addition to being able to counsel the portfolio companies, predominantly in the SaaS space, on go-to-market. It could be comp plans or what do I look for in my first leadership hire for sales, maybe do some interviews for them to help give them some perspective. So it was kind of a consultative role as well as it was a bit of an operating role because I did manage a team as well. When I first started my career, the first company that I was at was an Andreessen company. And very quickly, I became the inside sales manager. I had no idea what I was doing. And I hear of this woman named Jamie Buss, who is, <laughs> you're cringing. So, what company was so, it? Uh, it's, it's called Bracket Computing. Oh, yes. Not what we had all hoped it would be. <laughs> You know what? Startups are hard. Startups are hard. And my boss at the time, Jeff St. Clair, said you should go. Was it it the prospecting workshop? Yes, it was a workshop on prospecting stuff. Yep. And he said, you should go just check this out. And he said, at the very least, you should just go get a feel for what Andreessen is and what Venture is. And he's like, you could go check out Sand Hill Road. And it's funny how now we're on Sand Hill recording this, but... 
I remember walking in and I was a kid in the candy store. It was so opulent. It was so nice, which is, I think, the impression that you want to have when you're most people walking in. That's kind of the point. I remember thinking at first I was so impressed and intimidated by this setting. And then I thought, man, it felt far removed for me from the building part of it. So when you say, oh, Andreessen reached out and you kind of ignored it. When I started my conversations with Kleiner, I did the exact same thing because I was like, this doesn't feel like the builders, <laughs> you know, like this does, it feels like a different world. So anyway, we have met before. Actually, I feel like I've met you, but you've never Gosh, really met me. I feel me. bad now. <laughs> How are you going to know? I don't remember. There was like a hundred yeah. people in the room. Yeah, it was. It, we did those workshops where we did all the different topics. Was it one of those that we did up yes. here? Yeah. It yeah, was yeah. in the office. Anyway, funny story. And a small world. And a very, very small world. What was your evaluation criteria like when you thought about, okay, Jamie, you're leaving your operating career right now. This very step-by-step sales career where you take on a number, then you take on a bigger number, then you take on a bigger role. This is not that. Going to Andreessen was absolutely not that. I understand the child and kind of the personal implications of what that was, What was your thought process professionally? And what do you think could go well? What could go really wrong here? Could you put me in your head in that time? Yeah. So at that time, CoRate, I had joined it because it was part of the VMware ecosystem. I knew Josh, the head of sales. I knew the CEO who I'd worked with at Ink to me. But the company, unfortunately, I could see the writing on the wall, even though I was heading into maternity, that I was going to probably have to look for something else. And I wasn't sure what that something else was going to be. And as you noted, my three choices post VMware were not the best Mm. for me personally. Mm -hmm. And so when this opportunity knocked, I didn't look at it as a departure from operating. I looked at it as an opportunity to sit at the heart of Silicon Valley for a given period of time and really evaluate what I wanted to do next. So I looked at it as a stop on my journey, not as the end of the journey. I didn't really feel that at that point in my career, I would just stay at Andreessen Horowitz forever. I wanted to look at, listen, I got to be in pitch meetings with Mark and Ben. That was pretty remarkable. What questions did they ask and how did those go? That's something I am very thankful that I have the experience with. I got to learn from Mark Cranny, who I took his playbook, essentially, and used it at Zendesk and really turned around our ability to forecast accurately and drive enterprise deals. So it was a great experience, but I don't think I ever entered it with, oh, I'm going into venture. I looked at it as this is a very unique opportunity that very few people get. I can be at the heart of Silicon Valley. I can learn a lot, and then I can decide what I want to do after this. It's an MBA in tech is the way that I thought about it. Yeah, that's how I felt about it, too. I remember when I was thinking about it. This was two and a half years ago. I was looking for the next ride and I'm a startup person through and through. There's no way if I were to ever leave the walls of Kleiner Perkins that I'm not going to a startup. It's just what I love. And I was talking to portfolio companies of the firm to go run sales in different companies and they had some security companies and whatever. And what I found was a couple of things. One, I couldn't tell who actually did what. It all started to kind of sound the same to me, especially in security. It was all very just like similar. So I had a hard time distinguishing what was what. The second was I never truly felt, and maybe it's just because I wasn't senior enough, that I had a real unvarnished look 
under the hood of the car. I wanted to see exactly the way that things were. Nor did I even know how to read a cap table or the way that the prep stack was done or whatever it was, right? Or even how to do the division of outstanding shares versus my shares to understand how much equity I was getting. None of that. And so I thought, okay, if you can't beat them, join them. And the bear case was do a tour of duty there, whatever that means, build relationships with the CEOs and our entrepreneurs build relationships with these CIOs and some, and the, the network just opens up wide open for you as soon as you do this. And then you can jump into the portfolio. The bull case was you build a career here. And everybody told me you can't build a career here. That was the number one piece of advice that I always got was that you can't build a career in venture unless you're an investor. Now, as I'm reflecting on it and being having a very honest reflection at Kleiner's office, I think you can build a career. And it's funny because you ended up leaving three years later. I'm about a year away from that mark, so maybe things change. But part of me has felt like I've almost seen too much. And I write down every quarter, what do I think of different companies? Because I want to check my litmus test for how can I evaluate what's going on? And I have all the data, asymmetric information. I know the board. I know the CEOs. And I sit in the pitch meetings with Mamoon and Ilya and all these things. And I write down all my own thoughts. And as much credit as I'd like to continue to give myself for how smart and thoughtful and good of a picker I am, it's so hard. And so you realize even when you're here, you still don't know. You still don't know. Nope. And that's terrifying to pick wrong. Well, the thing is, when you're in venture, you have a portfolio and you only need about what, one or two in that fund to really make a lot of money. Yeah. But when you're one human looking for a job, you only get to pick one. Yeah. You don't get to diversify. Yeah. And it's a lot harder to pick that one. You have to really think hard. What is the criteria that's going to make me happy? Not just try to find the one unicorn in the bunch, but what it, what day to day is going to make me happy and then follow that path? Because it's really hard to pick the one. Even inside. Even, even inside. You know. And I think that scared me a little bit. And I'm not saying that I would never not go to a startup again because I'm afraid of picking wrong. Even if you pick right, it's still so hard. And I've never been a part of the incredible rides. I always thought in my head, it must be pretty easy. It must be super fun. It must be all these things. And I realize now the strain and tension is still insane in these high growth startups. I'm like, man, still not easy. Kind of scared me, honestly. Yeah. No, I don't think there's any easy. There's just different kinds of hard. Yeah. You know, being in a rocket ship, like in the early days at VMware, we'd have clients call at the end of the quarter and we'd have people tell them, unless you can spend $100,000 with me, I'm going to have to talk to you next month. That's how much inbound that we had. And there are companies now that have that level of inbound and that's a different level of challenge. Yeah. But there's a lesson to be learned, I think, in that. And then also sometimes when it's harder, because it's not always going to be like that for each of those companies either. Did the pace jar you moving from a operating cadence of quarterly to an operating cadence of every decade? You know, the time horizons when you're an operator yes. in sales is yeah. every quarter, maybe even every month. Yep. Here, you do not see the result of your work, generally speaking, for best case five years. Yeah. Best case. The ways that you start managing your calendar, doing all these things completely changes. That was 
a very helpless feeling for me when I first joined. What was it like for you? Well, it was easier. Yeah. It was easier than having the cadence of a normal operating cadence. But then... Like not having a number hanging over your head. Yeah. I mean, I created a number because I couldn't live without one. So So I created numbers. I created metrics. I did QBRs. I did the whole thing. Right? I mean, I just have to have some normalcy, like grounding. I needed to be grounded. Yeah. We're going back to our routines. Yeah. I need... Yeah. You and I and our routines. We lack our routines. So I did the same thing there too. I think for me, I couldn't really get big wins. Like it was hard to get the kind of wins that you can get when you're operating. And eventually I loved that job. I didn't actually see myself leaving it until probably around the three-year mark. And then I was like, put me in the game, coach. I really want to be back with the team. Call me a glutton for punishment, but I miss being with the team at the end of a quarter on a New Year's Eve and closing out a year. I remember that from the early days in VMware and other jobs. And I really like that sense of camaraderie of being with everyone and fighting for something that's hard. I missed it. There was just an element that in venture, it didn't have that same level of intensity or camaraderie or teamwork that I felt that being an operator had. And I just wanted to be back on a team. But it was a different pace. You'd want to talk about pace changes. Going from the pace of venture to then the pace of Zendesk at that time and running what was over half of the public company's business. Talk about a move that maybe I was a little underdog for. Were you insecure that you lost your fastball after three and a half years? Did you ever get worried or nervous that, you know what? Oh man, can I still forecast? Did you think about that stuff? You know how if you take a little bit too long of working out and you know when you get back in, it's going to be hard, but if you just keep at it, it'll be okay. That's how I felt about it. I'm like, "Mm, I'm a little rusty, but let's lean in on what I know and what I'm good at. I'm good at figuring out process. I'm good at getting the people galvanized together and leading with my leadership principles and working with the managers to do that. So I said, I'm going to lean on what I'm good at. And eventually I'll be able to be up in the pace that is required of running a public company, large book of business, as opposed to running what I was running at A16Z. So when I first started, maybe four weeks, six weeks in, I went to the partnership and I told them when I sit across the table from an entrepreneur, I can't get over this overwhelming feeling that I'm on the wrong side of the table. When they talk about the challenges that they have, I want to go fix them. And they started laughing and they said, that's why you're in the seat. That feeling is exactly why we want people that are fresh off operating to be in the seat because That is a way to to create empathy with the portfolio. However, if you're in venture for long enough, you're no longer fresh off that seat. You're supposed to, and I put that in air quotes, go into this job when you're at the end of your career. People tell me that all the time. I'm like, at the end of my career, I feel like I haven't even started my career. I've always found this interesting tension of operators that oscillate between going into venture and out of venture. Your old boss, Brian, did the same thing going in Mm -hmm. and then back out. And then Brian's old boss, Carl, went from operating to venture, stayed there. It's a funny kind of world. I don't really know how to explain it. I hear what you're saying. I think that the value that you bring is you have that sales experience, right? You have that of living that life of being a sales manager and BDR and whatnot. I think that there is an element of the longer that you stay, the farther away you get from how companies are being run. I'll give you an example. You know, being at Articulate, it's the first time where we're using Notion and we're using Trello as an example. And those are not tools that we were using ubiquitously at Zendesk. And so 
I'm having to rethink, okay, there's certain things of how I operationalize my business. How do I leverage it in this way? Everything's on Slack, not email. Zendesk was kind of 50-50. So now I'm orienting more towards 100% remote with all these different tools. When you get farther away from it, you end up using tools in the portfolio. But I think you get a little bit farther away from how companies are currently operating because you just don't have to operate in the same way. I totally agree. Okay, so then you decide on Zendesk. Can you walk me through, was Zendesk a portfolio company? It was not. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know. That's, I'm sure that, that stung a bit on the A16Z side. However, the opportunity to go to Zendesk was something at scale where I'd be running over half the business. It was BDRs. We didn't have BDRs. I built that. But we had STRs. We had SMB. We had basically the equivalent of commercial and enterprise. And when you go to a startup... I think it's important to have a lot of exposure to a lot of different things. And Zendesk had all those different components and it was established. So I didn't have to worry about product market fit. That was well established. It was basically an execution challenge more than any product challenge or anything. Product was fantastic. It had great product market fit. All that was working really well, but we weren't doing anything proactive. Everything was inbound. We needed to build out different teams that hadn't been built out before. And going back to the earlier point of when you're inside and you still can see everything you can see, picking one startup is really hard. And I wanted to be in an environment where I've had the opportunity to learn a lot and I didn't have to worry about the viability of the company, the product market fit. None of that. I could really focus on, listen, this is a big job. It's bigger than any job I've had before. These folks are going to take a chance on me. I know I can do it. And I believe that over the five years, I've more than proved that I was a good choice for that role. And that was kind of the math I did. It was like, it was a very unique opportunity to run a really big book of business at a public company in a really large span of control that really interested me. When you came into the business at Zendesk, this wasn't the top region. You didn't take the best part of the business and absolutely just light it on fire and grow it. I've heard you took pretty much the lowest performing thing and turned it into the highest performing thing. Again, that's surprising to me. I wouldn't have made that decision. I probably also wouldn't have prioritized span of control. So I'm just putting myself in your head and asking myself why. I just felt that I could be successful. Yeah. I just believe. By believed. the way, you were right. I, so, I was right. Yeah. And I believed it. And the span of control piece is... I like solving complex problems. So I like to think of myself as like a problem solver who happens to be good at sales. And the more different areas I have to look at, where do I lean in? What kind of roles do I have? I really, really enjoy that aspect of my job. And so at Zendesk in the first three, four years, I had that large span of control and I really, really enjoyed it because I could decide, okay, I've got this one budget. Where do I place the bets? Am I going to build an outbound team? What's going to be my return on investment in that? Am I going to look at renewals? If I look at building a renewals team, which we didn't have, how much productivity gain can I get from the sales team by offloading X amount of renewal percentage of renewals from the sales team having to do it? Those were very interesting to me. I still to this day really like having a large span of control and having a lot of things to figure out. I thrive in that. It's not just for me about closing deals. I love that. Believe me, I love winning. I'm very, very competitive. And I like complex systems that I have to think through and solve and optimize. I feel like I've been really successful at 
figuring out the paths of least resistance and where to pull back and where to lean in to be successful. Problem solver that happens to be good at sales. That is such a well said way of basically me summarizing. And it's probably the title of this episode, everything that everybody said to me about you. Did you ever think about leaving sales and going and solving a different type of problem? I did actually. So when I was at A16, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, when I was at A16Z, I toyed with the fat with the idea of doing something more on the product marketing side or business development side. And I had some conversations actually over at Google at the time. I love Google, great company. I have friends that are there. But one of their interview questions to me was, "Tell me the difference between SQL and NoSQL." And I looked at my interviewer and I said, "If that's the type of question you expect me to answer, I'm not the right fit for this job mm-hmm. because I have no idea." <laughs> like. I have no clue what the difference between those two is. Like, if you want me to walk you through how to build a sales team or how I'd run a sales process or how I do onboarding, I can answer all those. But it just quickly became clear to me that my skill set and superpower and my knowledge was really in. I loved selling and it didn't make sense for me to depart from it. I just really, I like being on the sales team. There was a story that you had an epiphany when you were bathing your son and he splashed the laptop. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so... I was at A16Z at the time, and my son was however old they are when you still have to watch them in the bathtub. So I'm guessing sub one. And I had left work around 5, 5.30. We were fortunate to have a nanny at the time, which I'm super grateful for because it had been really hard for us both to work without having childcare at the time. And so I hadn't been with my son all day. I'd been at work. We had dinner. I'm sitting down. I'm buried in email because I left a little early, quote unquote. And so I was behind on email. And so I was in the bathroom with him on the floor, cranking away, catching up on email. He's playing with his boats or whatever. And he does a big splash and he gets all over my laptop. And I snapped at him. And all of a sudden, this feeling came over. What are you doing? This is his time. You have time to do work. You need to be present with him not at work right now. And I closed the laptop. And from that moment on, the term unapologetically present came to me. And it just dawned on me that when I'm with my family, I should not feel guilty about that because they're the most important thing to me of anything. And so when I have dedicated time with them, I'm with them and I'm present, I'm paying attention, I'm asking questions, I'm playing, whatever it is, whatever that floor time or whatever that is with that child. And then when I'm at work, I'm also unapologetically present at work, which has helped me a lot now that I work from home, that when the eight-year-old pops in and wants to tell me about whatever happened at school that day, great, Riley, I can't wait to hear about that. You're going to have to give mommy 30 more minutes. Mommy will be out. As soon as I come out, you can tell me all about your story. And I don't feel bad about that because I'm still in my workspace. But when I'm with him or when I'm with my family, I'm with them and I'm not on email. I'm not on Slack. I turn my notifications off. I'm paying attention to the conversation and that has been a game changer for me. You're very intentional about creating boundaries in that way. And I'd argue it probably suits you considering we started this conversation with you saying that you're not very good at doing concurrent tasks anyway. That's right. And so maybe it's good for you. (laughs) It's very good for me and everyone involved, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) So you, you go to Articulate. You joined five months ago. In 30 seconds or less, can you say what the company does? So we make the most popular apps for online training. Our goal is to change the way that companies look and view and consume e-learning by making it easy to create, to manage, to distribute, and create content that learners enjoy. It is a very unique company in many respects. 
founded in 2002 by a fellow named Adam Schwartz, who's now the executive chairman, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Brought in a full-time CEO, Lucy, who heard you speak very fondly of. And I think she was a big part of your decision-making criteria to go here. Is that mm-hmm. She was, absolutely. Yeah. I can't even call this a Series A, but it's really the first institutional round. Yep. $1.5 billion. Yep. Led by Blackstone, Iconic, and General Atlantic. Brought the valuation of the company to $3.75 billion. When did that happen? That was last year. So before you joined. Yes, it was before I joined. They actually hadn't hit my radar until You saw that. Until I saw that. I'm not terribly involved in the online or e-learning space, yeah. to be honest. Like I've been selling desktop support software. So this <laughs> doesn't really hit my radar too much. But what interested me, what some of my criteria is I love product-led growth. I love either something that has a freemium or a try-and-buy type of motion. I prefer that with the ability to sell to enterprise top-down as well. That's kind of the product motion that I really look for when I'm looking at products. And the other component I was looking for, if you look at like people and product, the people component was really important. And when I talked to the recruiter, I said, e-learning, I don't know. They said, you really should talk to Lucy, the CEO. I think you're really going to like her. And I said, great. You know what? I'd love to meet her. Let's set it up. And so we set up the meeting and we just clicked immediately I felt like I'd found my people because Lucy not only is extremely competitive, which I absolutely love about her, but she combines that with really caring about her people and building a company where you're surrounded by thoughtful, respectful doers. It was really hard for me to find a company that truly was building principles around people and building process and product to be successful. And that really mattered to me because I felt like that's something I've been trying to build my own brand on for so long. And I really hadn't found anyone where I felt like it was resonating in that same way. It's one thing for a company to take a bunch of money. It's another thing for a company to take a bunch of money when you're the CRO. It's another thing for a company to take a bunch of money when you're the CRO and then for you to join after that bunch of money. Because what that means is that there is now growth expectations beyond just the people that are inside the company. And as we know, when you put in money like this, there's a multiple return that the investors expect. And that's the expectation that they set with their LPs. How did you think about that? Did you get scared? Did you get excited? Was that a challenge? Did you vet that out? No, I did. I feel kind of like how I've taken on every challenge and that I'm pretty good at figuring out what needs to be done. And The best possible outcome, whatever that is, I know I can do it. And so that's how I've approached most of my opportunities. So yes, is it aggressive? It is. But what in my past hasn't been? So I look at it as an opportunity to step up and make changes. What excited me was I felt that I could come in and make a difference. I could be valuable. I could come in and you could see the value of what we're delivering in the ability to deliver that multiple, in the ability to push that year-over-year growth. And in a responsible way, the company is extremely profitable. That's not the issue. The issue is strategically making the right investments so that we turn the engine from being very reactive, like we were at Zendesk, to how do we combine that and be proactive as well? That's the piece that I saw was missing. And I knew that I'd built that motion and had been very successful of switching those gears from reactive and balancing with proactive before. Actually, VMware, we had to do it. Zendesk, we had to do it. And then same problem here. So I felt that my playbook 
could be very valuable and that I could really help deliver success for the company. Five months in, right, Ish? How much of the playbook, as you put it, do you think you can squarely apply to articulate? That's a great question because I wasn't sure how much. And some of the parting advice I got when I left SunDusk is be careful about how much extreme change you put an organization through immediately. And I think it was good advice because when you go into a new company, your first goal is discovery. You have to understand where you are. You kind of know where you need to get to. Your real goals when you come in is what are the incremental steps that I can take now to get me there? Because I can't get to point B right now. So I'll give you an example. My sales stages at my current company are not terribly useful, right? I have almost everything in stage five. I can't do much with that. That was a very tactical thing. However, that tactic of how you manage your sales process can inform your strategy of where you're going to invest in growth. So one of the first things I want to look at is, okay, that's not a huge change. Part of my sales process is looking at not a sales process by what actions we're taking, but what are the customer verifiable outcomes that the customers are demonstrating? Can I make a shift in mindset and in the process with the team so that we can start anchoring on outcomes, customer verifiable outcomes versus my action. So my action would be, I give a demo. A customer verifiable outcome is they get the champion and the economic buyer onto the demo. Do you see how that mind flip changes? So making tiny changes like this, they might not feel tiny to the team. They feel tiny to me. I'm trying to be conservative because if I had in my druthers, I would just put my whole playbook in action right away. I can't just rip an org that's been used to doing something for so long and just face plant them into something that's totally different. So by implementing pieces and figuring out what piece to implement when, I can get people on board and make incremental improvements, but without having mass attrition or people being really unhappy. And then I can't get anywhere without the team. What do you think was the most important question that you asked them to understand more about the opportunity? And what do you think was the hardest question that they asked you to figure out if you were the right revenue leader for this business? I have to admit, it was such a natural conversation between myself and the company. It just felt like such a natural fit. I really don't feel that I was in a position where any question felt difficult. It felt very natural. Like what they were asking me of what I could deliver, I could. One of the questions I really wanted to vet that was extremely important to me is that I thrive with autonomy. I don't do well under micromanagement. If you bring me on, you'd be better off to set and forget me than to micromanage me. I'll do much better under set and forget, not that I want that, but I'll do better under that condition than under micromanagement. And so one of the things I was looking for is, what are you looking for in your CRO? Do you already have a vision of where you need the, I run sales and success, marketing is a parallel organization, so I have sales and success and sales enablement and all that good stuff. But what are you looking for? What do you envision that relationship between Lucy and your CRO? How do you envision that looking? And she goes, listen, I want you to come in and tell us what we need to do. I want you to come in here and own this and run it. And for some people, perhaps that might feel intimidating. Like it's a blank slate. Like you just need to come in, quickly assess. You basically have to fly the plane while blindfolded and swap out the engine at the same time and probably a bunch of other parts too. So they had to vet me for my comfort level that the plane engine was going to have to be swapped and I was going to be blindfolded. Because if you bring in someone that thinks this is just an execution problem and everything's great, you just have to do a couple things and everything's going to be great. They had to vet me for how much rolling up the sleeves and hands-on would I be willing to do 
and how much autonomy was I going to get? And those are the two things that I was vetting for. And I think anytime anyone's interviewing, you need to be self-aware enough to know what's going to be most important for you in that CEO to CRO relationship that's going to work well for you and really get a lay of the land of how much assistance are you going to have versus how much are you going to have to do that you might not be used to doing? And are you comfortable with that? Yeah, in some ways, it's a really exciting opportunity, not just for you, but for those on your team or those that you would recruit because you get all the de-risking that you generally look for without the existential threat of the business. However, you get all of the building that you otherwise would be attracted to in an early stage startup. That's exactly right. I felt that it was de-risk because it was extremely profitable, a well-known product, 100% of the Fortune 100 are clients. I'm on calls with brands that my mom recognizes. The long tail too, we've got customers from SMB all the way to Fortune 500, Fortune 100. So it's de-risked and there's a lot of building to do. So speaking of all the building, what are you hiring for? Are there any key roles that you want to shout out? Good opportunity to play favorites and then best way to get a hold of you. In my organization, which again is sales and success, we have a critical leadership position open. So it's a strategic account manager director role that will report directly to Maria Country, who's the head of my North America sales team. That's a critical role for us. I also have several enterprise account executive roles open, and there's also some SMB roles as well. So there's definitely on the sales team. Marketing, if you if marketers are listening to, I think there's a VP of product marketing. We just had a CMO start a week ago. So she's looking to staff up her team. I don't know all the details on the marketing side, but they're very important to my success. So I wanted to throw that out there. Good, good. How do you get a hold of you? LinkedIn would be the best way. LinkedIn. Last question. What does grit mean to you? Grit means pushing through, believing in yourself, even when somebody tells you no. Jamie Buss, thank you. Thank you so much, Jubin. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback. So feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.